Would you continue in prayer with me? Father, we confess we don't know the depth of that which we have just sung. Take this world, but give me Jesus. But Father, we this morning say we we want you to do a work in our heart where he is everything. Would you take your hand and finger by finger remove the clutches of our hands from the things of this world? Father, we want Jesus. We want Him above all things. We want Him to be at the center of all things. We know that He is enough. Train us, teach us, Work in us a heart that matches our knowledge. Shape our passions to be passions of abandonment and fulfillment. Forsaking things that are so temporary. Things that we can merely see and touch. Clinging unto that which is eternal, even you. Father, give us ears to hear your word this morning. May the sheep that know your voice hear it this morning and may those who do not hear the voice of Christ because they are not sheep be drawn unto the great shepherd this morning who promises to lift them up, to gather them in among his fold. And so, Father, we pray for that lost one who may be listening today, that they would come to know Jesus like a treasure, priceless, above anything else. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Christ and Class in Proverbs. Christ and Class in Proverbs. The Apostle Paul speaks of what we would consider to be the unspeakable in his letter to the church in Philippi. In just a few words, the Apostle Paul describes the what for us, at least on this side of the veil, is an unimaginable drama taking place when Jesus lay aside, lays aside his robes in heaven. I don't know that we will ever fully grasp or understand or appreciate, and it will take all of eternity for us to affirm the glory and worthiness that Jesus set aside when He stepped down from the throne in heaven and descended into a manger in Bethlehem. And the Apostle Paul writes it simply and beautifully through the Spirit's inspiration in Philippians chapter 2. He says, This mind has been given to you in Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped. When we stretch those words out and and really unpack what the Apostle Paul is saying here, he is saying, Jesus laid aside His heavenly robes, His heavenly privileges, and made Himself nothing. There are two dire contrasts in those images. The contrast of having a reputation 
where all of heaven unceasingly adores you. Where cherub surround your throne in unceasing language of saying, Holy, holy, holy. And you lay aside the privilege of God. And you become of the reputation of nothing. Listen, folks, in the Gospel of Jesus Christ is all of the hope of the treasures that every human and any human could ever want. Amen? I pray it's so. I pray that this morning in this, in this, this looking into the Word of God, that God will, will really convict us in our hearts to really understand what it means to say, take the world, but give me Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus, in a way, said the opposite when He came into this world. Father, I am leaving Your side so I can have the world. The world of lostness. The world of scoundrels, of rebels, of wretches, of wicked ones, of those who constantly trespass and deny and blaspheme and scoff at the name of God, give me them. I'm taking off my robe so I can have the world. That's the gospel. Jesus forsakes all so He can have us. And then we forsake all and we get Him. As Christians, we desperately need God to train our hearts because as we are ready to confess, we really by practice, not by singing, but by practice demonstrate that He isn't enough. We really want more than Jesus. And I hesitate to use the word class in our title this morning, and so let me share a little bit of caveat on that. Class can have a negative term when we think about society. It, it can have a condescending or, or some, and, and in any type of, has a lot of feelings associated with it. But, but can I define class in, in a way that maybe be synonymous with socioeconomic status? What is socioeconomic status? One definition is this way, and I believe that all of us fall within the impact and the effects, and we live, we breathe, we walk within a socioeconomic economic status by default, which I would, I would suggest to you, I, I, I suggest to you in the thesis of this, that, that equals the, sort of the idea of class. Here's the definition of socioeconomic status. It is the position of an individual or a group on the socioeconomic scale, which is determined by a combination of social and economic factors, such as income, uh, amount and kind of education, type and prestige of occupation, a place of residence, not necessarily geographical, but type of residence. And in some societies and cultures or parts of society, 
It even relates to ethnic origin or even religious background. This morning, we're going to dig into this this morning, and and I had asked several weeks ago, would you share with us uh, maybe some topics that you would like for us to unpack in the preaching of the Proverbs before we leave this precious book? And several of you actually were mimicking each other in your responses unknowingly. A lot of you, several of you said, speak into poverty and poor and maybe even the socioeconomic idea of social justice. And Where do we stand as Christians in our understanding of, of relating to trying to bring equity? Is there a possibility for that as churches and as Christians approach those who seem less fortunate than ours? It's entirely necessary that we begin with understanding the poverty and wealth of Jesus Christ. Let's stay tethered to Jesus Christ for this conversation. Because we preach a biblical gospel and not a social gospel. And when we keep Christ at the center of our hope and Christ at the center of our understanding of unpacking every condition of human poverty, when we keep Christ in the middle, it keeps everything really, really clear. When we bring the hope of Jesus Christ into the middle of the brokenness of humanity in every way in which that brokenness demonstrates itself, when we bring hope into the middle of human depravity, it makes everything clear. And so this morning, unashamedly, we are going to stay gospel-centered and Christ-centered in our understanding of what it is that God desires for us as we speak into the brokenness of this world. We begin by an understanding that we live in a now and a not yet kingdom. We live in a now and a not yet kingdom. The kingdom has come and yet not yet fully. We read of Jesus' ministry and we see the greatest teacher who ever lived and, and the greatest benefactor who ever lived. You see, not just an announcer of good news, but a shower of good news. A very benevolent by actions and by his deeds person. Jesus truly was the greatest teacher and is the greatest benefactor who ever lived. Jesus' ministry then is by word and deed a declaring of the kingdom. Jesus preached the good news and he showed the good news of the kingdom. He preached and he showed. He preached and he showed the good news of the kingdom. And this helps us to answer the question as Christians, as we think about how do we come to the brokenness and fallenness and even the poverty of this world, this helps us to answer the question of what would Jesus do? You see, the church of Christ needs a full Christ-centered answer to this question. What would Jesus do? And it must take its pace from the very words and actions of Jesus Christ. We preach and we show the gospel good news of the kingdom. When we trace the movements of Jesus, we often find him among the hurting, among the weak, and more often than not, we find Jesus among the poor. It isn't often that we see Jesus in the palaces. As a matter of fact, it seems almost as if the, the greater amount of his ministry spent in the palaces is those moments before his crucifixion. And so it isn't often that we see him in palaces or in homes of the wealthy. 
In Isaiah 61, and I ask that you would turn there with me. In Isaiah 61, the world and God, God uh, called upon his prophet Isaiah to foretell of the type of ministry that the Messiah would have. What kind of ministry? How would we know that the Messiah had come? And when we read Isaiah 61, we want to take note of the brokenness of the people. What kind of people did he come to that are mentioned in the ministry of the Messiah when he comes? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Jesus came at a time in Israel's history when they're repeating the cycles of their own disobedience of the law. At times in the Old Testament, prophets came to Israel and said, you are as, as awful, as a matter of fact, you have gone a step further than Sodom and Gomorrah because of how you are treating the poor among you. This was the condemnation upon God that sent Israel into captivity into, into Babylon. But yet, even now, as Jesus had come into this world in His earthly ministry, Jesus came at a time when they're repeating the cycles of their own disobedience of the law. When the need of the prophet's writings in the second half of the Old Testament, when we learn that Israel was sent into captivity because God was so displeased with them. God wanted His people to loosen the chains of injustice and not just go to the temple on the Sabbath. Or, in our context, to just go to church on Sunday. Jesus wanted His people to clothe the naked and not just attend midweek prayer meetings. He wanted His people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry and not just sing praise music on the Sabbath. Those who will follow Jesus, whose lives are being conformed to Christ, are those who are learning that self-sacrificial love for others that is emanating God's love for them was a revolutionary concept to the pagan mind. And that type of self-sacrifice is still a revolutionary concept. We know that while many who do not know Christ or even acknowledge God in heaven altogether, that they can be philanthropists. We know that an unbeliever can be marked, can, can be marked by philanthropy. But there is a distinguishing mark upon the Christian in his participation in helping bind up the wounded and being generous to the materially poor. There is a distinguishing mark. What sets Christians apart? Years ago, when more than a hundred years ago, when America dove into its welfare program, there became an increased chasm, there became a gap between the church and its approach to helping the poor. Many who were holding to the purity of the preaching of the gospel distanced themselves from some churches who continued and moved into the sector and tried to, to enter into the gap between the government and the church and they began to preach what we would come to know as a social gospel. The social gospel is in many other ways another gospel and is a veiled way really of diminishing the recognition of the true extent of poverty that exists within the human heart. 
The fact is that the social gospel that is meeting only the felt needs of people misdiagnoses the heart of a man. The social gospel that leaves out in, in the message the true brokenness of a sinner's condition, that is that their true and greatest poverty is within themselves, that is their own heart, and the only way to find the greatest treasure is by faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is that the social gospel misdiagnoses and it misapplies its help and compassion. And although the Bible teaches that the local church must care for both the physical and spiritual needs of the poor, the Bible does, we do acknowledge that the Bible does not indicate that only the local church must care for the needs of the poor. In our society, in our country, we ought to be thankful as believers and thankful as a church that our, our society has a common grace that is that it reflects the image of God and man and that mankind, even though unbelieving, is merciful to one another to some extent. The nonprofits and charitable organizations abound around us who are meeting the needs of the poor, that no way does it seem that the church is able or at least capable in its mobilization to even begin to touch the needs of those who are impoverished around us. We know as Christians that a society in general can and should work together to help the poor, and we don't despise or look down upon those mercy acts of image bearers at all. But there's something unique about the church. You see, it is the church's ability to see just how poor people are in the first place that gives it a special and unique place and role to play in its community and our world at large. What is it that we use as our diagnosis tool? What is it that the church uses to diagnose the poverty and brokenness of the people and to bring them to solutions? It is our understanding, our diagnosis and remedy must be rooted in God's diagnosis, not merely what our senses tell us or what statistics tell us. Our diagnosis and remedy must be driven by the Word of God and it must be sourced in the Word of God. That's what makes us very, very special. We know the extent of the poverty. Because of the Word of God. We understand that the Bible's grand narrative speaks into what is going on in the present. That creation, fall, redemption, and eventual restoration is God's plot line for His glory. And when we begin with the story that is found, that is, that, that creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, when we begin with the story, of what God is doing, has been doing, and will do in this world. It gives us a pathway. It helps us understand where we are in the story, where our neighbor is in the story. And from the very beginning of that story, it helps us to learn that as relational beings, God created us to have relationships in four areas. We are relational beings. We are firstly relational beings because God is relational. In the Trinity, God demonstrates His desire, His passion, His inherent essence of being a relational being. And in His, in his creation of, of mankind, God has created us to have relationships in four ways. Number one, we are created firstly to have a relationship with our Creator. We are created to have a relationship with God. Number two, we are created to have a relationship with ourself, a self-consciousness, a self-awareness, a self-knowledge, an individuality, a, a soul essence, 
Thirdly, our relationship with others. Relational beings, we want to be around other people, we want to relate to other people, we're dependent upon other people in relationship with others. And fourthly, our relationship with, with all the stuff of the world. Relationship with all the creation. And because we have four different types of relationships, the fact is that the fall actually severed our relationship with every single category of the relationship. Sin has cursed us. It has divided us in our, recon- our, our, our relationship with God. It has broken our view of God. It has also affected so deeply a, a broken view of ourselves. Upon self-examination, we believe we're okay. We have a, a heart that is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know the heart, Jeremiah says? We have a broken relationship with ourselves. We have no idea what it is, apart from the work of the Spirit, what pleasures there are to be found in God through Jesus Christ. And so we stuff our bodies and we stuff our, stuff our soul, we stuff our passions with everything of this world, thinking it can satisfy ourselves because we're trying to find a replacement for that which was broken in our relationship with ourselves. And then thirdly, we have a broken relationship with others. And I, I barely need to describe what that's like because I think we all feel that. Fourthly, we have broken relationship with stuff. We we don't care we don't take care of stuff. And sometimes we take too much care of stuff. We have a broken relationship with all of creation, so in those four ways, if if we're to understand the depth of our poverty, we must recognize actually it is our relationship with stuff that's actually the fourth most important relationship. Even though it appears that when on the outside, when we see those who are materially poor or materially insecure, we recognize visibly it may appear to be their greatest need. We recognize actually there, there are three broken relationships before that one even comes on the radar. And so as a church, with the word of God's diagnosis, we're able to discern, we're able to recognize that in these four ways is a person broken. And not just a person, but every person. And you and I, through the reconciliation of Jesus Christ as children and followers of Jesus Christ, children of God and followers of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, are given the opportunity and given the power and given reconciliation in all four areas. And in demonstration and manifestation of the Spirit's blessing, God is shaping you and I to have restored relationships in all four of those areas. So that in a believer's life, it should be said, that person has a right relationship with God. Number two, that person has a right right relationship with their body. They have a right relationship with their passions, their appetites, their desires. It's being restored. They're making progress. They're being sanctified in their relationship to their self. Thirdly, their their relationships with others demonstrate the peace of God. And then fourthly, that person, because Jesus Christ is their treasure, holds all things loosely and stewards them under the glory of God. And so we begin by understanding the poor as realizing that they are part of the good world that God has created. We begin by understanding that poverty isn't a new problem to the world. We know that. 
But we also recognize in, we also recognize that God has been working and saving the poor and their communities ever since the beginning of time. Before we go any further, let's agree on a definition of what we're talking about when I just said the poor. So every human being, since because of sin, we experience poverty in all four areas. I think that we, we need to reject this concept that there are poor and we're not one of them. How was your relationship with your money this week? How was your relationship with your money this week? That tells you about your poverty. Were you generous? Stingy? Did you overspend on something to indulge yourself? Did you, whatever, what was your relationship with stuff? So you know what it's like to be poor. When God diagnoses it, we all of a sudden realize, you know what? I have the same view of money as someone who doesn't have it. Because I thought it would bring me happiness. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7? When the church began, the early church began to minister into the needs of the poor right away. Like, not even day number two, but it initially the church was really just full of poor people. People who are incredibly needy. Materially needy especially. The economically poor, the materially poor, are singled out in Scripture as being in a particularly desperate category and as needing a very specific attention. And so in Acts chapter 6, the needs of the church have begun to arise and there's many amongst the church that that need help and they begin to identify the church special servants in the church, especially deacons who can organize and collaborate and facilitate moving towards those in the church who need special help materially. And so they raise up. They raise up disciples and they raise up some some men among them and you see them in verse number 5. And they prayed over them and they laid hands on them. And look at number verse number 7. Then these men, we... A lot of times think of them as deacons, although they're not given that that title in this passage. Then these men move towards the needs that were in the church. In verse number 7. So the word of God spread. Look, on the heels of meeting material blessings, of material needs, on the heels of meeting physical needs, the word of God spreads. And notice, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It increased rapidly. Why wasn't it increasing rapidly before? Because there was unmet needs. Unmet opportunities to bring the gospel to show that the poverty was greater than what the person had ever believed it to be. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests. That's unusual to be, to be seated right here. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why? Why now all of a sudden we find out a particular type of person comes to Christ? And by the way, we actually find out there's a large number of them. Why is it 
and priests. Uh, it sounds really good. Okay, so there's some religious leaders who are turning away from their self-righteousness and they're turning towards Christ. That's really wonderful, but does that have anything to do with any of the context of what's taking place in the church, of the activity of the church? So why and how did so many priests turn away from their empty religion of Judaism and turn towards Christ? The answer is by seeing the effective and intentional ministry of the church to meet the needs of those who are poor. Particularly the widows as representative of those who are unable to provide for themselves. You see, the priests were so impacted that the lives of those who worshipped with them were so dramatically changed and that the people of God had begun to demonstrate a selfless and self-sacrificing way of living, especially towards those who are not like them, especially towards those who are even foreigners. It had been the priest's job to meet the needs of the poor. It had been the temple's job to collect the tax that would be distributed to the poor. But now people were willingly happily and gladly approaching the poor and now with a different spirit and now not only are they bringing material relief to the poor and physical relief to the poor but now they're bringing the good news that Jesus Christ is Savior to the poor and the poor's lives were being changed and the priests were beholding. Now the priests had seen people worshiping God all the time. They saw sacrifice after sacrifice. They were facilitating for the sacrifice of the temple constantly, daily. They knew what it was to have worshippers and have devout people. But now what was so significant was taking place in front of their eyes was that this was not out of compulsion that people were meeting needs. Not by, not by the law, but now by grace, if you will. And that these poor, were, their needs were being met, but there was something that was changing in the lives of the poor. And that, that is that they were no longer living for money, for what could fill their cup. They now had a new meaning and a new purpose, a new value on their life. They, these poor, their needs weren't just being met physically. But now, for once, the poor were at peace. Listen, that, unless Jesus is ministering into the heart of someone who's materially poor, there is no peace. Oftentimes, even God uses the depravity, the poverty of a situation, whether it's the lack of our control in a certain situation that's out of our control, maybe it's a physical affliction or, or a financial need, or whatever it is. He uses those times of great need to, to draw us to Him, to draw us into peace with Him. So does brokenness in material poverty. It gives the opportunity, it is the opportunity that God brings towards the human heart to say, you, you, can't even, you can't even hold this together. You need me so desperately. I just have an inkling, and I, I believe this to be a biblical pattern, if not a principle, that it is, it is easier for the poor to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a rich man. And that is because the poor are able to assess and recognize they just need God in every single way. And I'll say this, I believe that the materially poor are probably the greatest mission field on this planet. And when we saw Jesus, when we see Jesus' ministry, 
we find it to be very evident. Who's he going to constantly? I love how he records, I love how Jesus meets Zacchaeus, who is an extremely wealthy tax collector in Jericho. Remember, you remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? And a wee little man, was he? Jesus goes to his home and, he, and, and, and Zacchaeus really surrenders his heart over to the Lord, confessing that he is, that he is impoverished without Jesus. And without any command of Christ, after the meal is over, Zacchaeus takes his, his treasure chest and he puts it on a wagon and he goes around town and he starts to give back four times what he took from people. But do you think that that was reconciling his relationship with them? It might have been the beginning and it might have been a good sign. But do you know what he was carrying with him that was more precious than the gold and silver he was bringing into those homes? His motivation wasn't just just reconcile the horizontal. How do we know? Because when he returns back to his house, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, he says, for now you are the son of Abraham. Was Abraham someone who was a reverse sheriff of Nottingham? What is it that that seems significant about Abraham's life that gives him some sort of reputation that someone would say you're the son of Abraham. Well, certainly you're a child of the covenant. But you're a child of the one who we know lived by faith. Zacchaeus, you went out, and you went out with the purpose of, yes, reconciling the debt, and, and certainly very generously. But you went out with the faith the message of the faith that you had met the man. You're the son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was not on a mission of benevolence. He was on an evangelistic mission when he went door to door. So what is the strategy for the church to relieve the pressures that poverty brings upon a person? How do we as a church do this? We understand that what all the relationships are like. When we understand what all of these, in these four areas, these relationships are like, we can wisely move towards those who are poor. You see, we as church, like Zacchaeus, in that way, bringing reconciliation, the church brings the ministry of reconciliation, moving people closer to glorifying God by living in a right relationship with Him. The church helps bring the message that they can live in a right relationship with themselves, they can live in a right relationship with others, and they can live in a right relationship with everything else. You see, the goal for the church is to bring the ministry of reconciliation beginning with God. The avenue might be a wagon with some gold, but the goal isn't to get someone who is impoverished to be a middle-class citizen. The goal is reconciliation. That's the goal. The goal is not to make the materially poor all over the world into middle-to-upper-class North Americans. 
And so ministering into material poverty for the church means that we are working to reconcile four foundational relationships so that people can fulfill their calling of glorifying God by working and supporting themselves and their families with the fruit of that work. And the fact is that all of us need the Word of God, the Gospel of Grace, to speak into our material poverty just in different ways. And ultimately, the profound reconciliation of the key relationships that compromise, that comprise poverty, alleviation, can't be done without people accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Gospel is, is the grounds, the foundation for reconciliation. It must be proclaimed verbally. It must be proclaimed. Jesus, yes, He healed. He was among the poor. He provided for them. But He preached the good news. And both of them are given to us. If we preach and don't do, we're not accomplishing. If we do and we don't preach, We're not accomplishing reconciliation. Informing and educating those who are poor in poverty is not enough to trigger the true heart transformation. We can educate, we can train, we can bring them into financial stewardship, we can run programs that are good and healthy and helpful, but the fact is that they will never transform the heart. But the current, both the current mantra of society and many evangelicals tend to believe that systemic arguments for poverty amount to shifting the blame for personal sin and excusing moral failure. The fact is that because of Jesus Christ and because we know we are broken and without Jesus Christ we have no hope of reconciliation, we as believers can look upon this world and say, yes, there is systemic problem. And yes, there is individual sin. We can agree with all of it. We can agree that we live in a fallen world. The extent of schemes, the extent of manipulation, the extent of conspiracies, we probably only can imagine the tip of the iceberg because what is fueled behind this this fallen kingdom in this world is the devil himself. And so what we might hear on talk radio as sensational actually might be less or 1% of what is really going on in this fallen, cursed world. We can say yes to much of it, if not all of it, and say there's more than what you even know. You toss around the name of people like Soros, comes comes across a lot. He's nothing compared to the devil. And what he's doing is he's just running in a lane as some would would characterize him. I don't know him. He's just running in the lane of every unbelieving heart. It's fallen. It's broken. It's desperately wicked. And you and I are capable and commit such similar sins in our lives without Jesus Christ all of the time. The ultimate problem of poverty, the ultimate problem of poverty is the problem of sin. We are not saying that a poor person is sin and punishment is their poverty. But because of brokenness and the curse of sin in this world, the ultimate problem of poverty really is the problem of sin. And we live in a sin-cursed world and we participate 
in, in, in actually sinning against other people, and sometimes other people sin against us. We're the victims of other people's sins. Sometimes indistinguishably to the detriment of ourselves and to the harm of others. We are sinners, we live in a sinful world, and we sin. We can, we can say that all day long. God have mercy upon me. Remember though, in reconciliation, the goal is for everyone, everyone involved in reconciliation to glorify God, not just to increase their income. And so we as churches are uniquely positioned to provide relational ministries to people on an individual level. We get the opportunity as the church of Jesus Christ to not just minister to people in a crowd. We get the opportunity by the power of the Spirit of God, by the good news that we carry, we get the opportunity that is unlike any government or organization, we get the opportunity to meet with a person not just on the outside, but to speak unto their heart. To bring the Spirit, to bring His presence upon someone and to deliver to them the good news of their poverty and how God has a reconciliation. No matter the human experience, whether you live on streets or live in a home, or if you live in a mansion, sin has an effect, money even has an effect on relationships, money has an effect on our environment, on our opportunities, on our community, and so much more. And there's a link between money and power. And so often, really, they are inseparable, money and power, so that we can hardly even separate the two. And no matter who we are in this room, our financial situation has an inseparable link to our relational community. How much money you have inevitably affects how you relate to others and who they are. There's no way around it. We find this to be true in the most common human experience. And some would have us believe that we should feel guilty about the relationship that money has with relationships that we have with other people and the opportunities that we have. These people would seek to deceitfully separate one thing from another that is, that is money from us, financial and relational. Much like many other parts of our lives, it's, it's not so easy to dissect a, a certain part of our complex being from another part without major dysfunction and usually devastating and moral effects. You see, God knows that our relational life and our financial life has an inseparable interplay. And God mercifully hope-filled, gives hope-filled guidance into how we are to manage ourselves in the socio-economic realm that we all just have to live in. We know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was poor by her offering of the doves at the temple at Jesus' dedication. And while it appears that the three gifts from the Oriental kings were likely a great blessing as Joseph and Mary would flee with baby Jesus to Egypt, the remainder of their life lived in Galilee was really still lived in a carpenter's home. Far from being wealthy and far from living in an upper class neighborhood. And this was by God's design. 
God's design was to not only bring about something good through what we would consider a a lower class family, but to bring about his own redemption plan. You see, meanwhile, God never rescued his family from the workaday living of carpentry. They would seek, they would eke out a living, Joseph's father, day after day, one job at a time, as far as we could tell. When Christ moved about his, his ministry, nowhere do we see him handing out bags of gold and silver to the poor. We actually see him very needy at times himself, ministry to thousands without even a lunch order. You see, poverty isn't piety. It doesn't make us something wonderful, but it's also not punishment. We observe in society that wealth is often akin to status. We call that, as we had said, socioeconomics. And it's the way of mankind to have power and prestige because of wealth. And decreasingly, this is true with those who decrease in wealth. But God wants to rescue us from the pressure. God wants to rescue us from the perception of the false idea that socioeconomics need play a role in both our contentment and our stewardship. God wants to, to do this. He wants to rescue us. Whether little or much, he wants, God wants us to have a right relationship with himself, with others, with ourselves, and with things, with wealth. And he knows our minds and hearts. He knows that when you and I walk into a room, we are looking to see who are, who are we above at some sort of artificial level and who are we below. Whether it be as innocent by, as by perception of age, or whether we evaluate others in the room, by more condescending roles we play or perceived importance that they play, we all assess the room that we walk into. And sadly, it isn't just the room that we assess. We tend to assess ourselves in light of our nearest community and our demographic and geographic community. We constantly play out our worth from the hand of our identity. We, by nature, want to climb the social ladder. We might not want to build a tower of Babel to ascend unto God, but we we might have designs, whether met or unmet, in our own lives to ascend. None of us wants to descend in our perception. None of us wants to descend in what we perceive to be socioeconomic standing. And so this morning, while there's much that Proverbs speaks to wealth and stewardship, and we handled some of those, I think, well through Pastor Golden's message last week and then the week before, stewardship and stuff, this morning we look at the Proverbs on wisdom for our socioeconomic life. So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs speaks into three areas where we as Christians struggle in the now. Where we struggle in that artificial ladder where we're seeking to at least maintain a socioeconomic leveling out. A status quo per se. Or even seek to raise, raise ourselves to the next rung on the ladder. God speaks into that, that feeling and that, that inward compulsion to, to try to climb the socioeconomic ladder. And he warns us and rescues us through his wisdom in Proverbs, especially in Proverbs 23. First of all, God warns us when we seek after position and status that we should be careful that we do not overreach. Notice in verses 1 through 3. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. 
And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are a deceptive food. God warns us as when we seek position and status. We've been invited to the table, so to speak. We've been put in the presence of someone who is, in our estimation, they're more important than us. We feel perhaps honored to be in their presence. Maybe they've achieved some more than we have, or, or maybe in some other way their, their perceived status seems greater than us. And perhaps we might feel just a little bit of intimidation to be in their presence. Be careful, because you know your heart, and you know you want them to like you. You know you want them to affirm you. You want to be known of them, known by them. Be careful in the motivation of your conversation and the position and posture that you have with this person. In the words of Proverbs, put a knife to your throat. Hold back the pang of that appetite to have a one-up mentality. To sort of feel like if you can't outdo this person, at least you can try to win some respect. But secondly, the writer of Proverbs tells us that God counsels us that wealth is like social status. It can come and go very easily. It's elusive. In verses 4 and 5, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. God counsels us that wealth is like social status. So you wanted to sit at the table of the ruler. You felt that there was some sort of honor bestowed upon you. Now you feel that you're just someone a little bit more important than you did before you walked into the room. And now you're sort of craving some of that wealth that he has. If you could just have just a little bit more, you would, you, everything would be okay. Like social status, wealth, is fleeting and elusive. Thirdly, the writer of Proverbs cautions us that the effort and skill of seeking the favors of someone who seems reluctant, someone who isn't ready to give favors, may actually bring you a secret dislike and not true friendship, not true partnership and companionship. Verse number six, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like the one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you. But his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to the words of knowledge. I love how the Bible is so piercingly accurate. It like reads your mind. Notice especially in verse number 6 and 7. Here's a particular, what could we say, nuanced motive, but yet a common motive. Be careful what you ask for. You might get it. And you might not like it. That's essentially what verses 6 and 7 are saying. And often, it's an overreach. 
Our socioeconomic circumstances are a God-ordained part of our lives, and there's no way of living without their impact on our relationship and our community. But we must also learn this, that when we search for significance by things, by prestige, by relationships, by being known, as they are so closely related to those feelings of confidence and acceptance and security, what in fact we are doing when we search for significance is we are neglecting the holy appointment that God has established for us. We need to be reminded that we are image-bearing co-regents. That is to say, we are surrendered stewards. Now, I'm looking at a lot of stewards, and all of us are stewards in this room, but the question isn't whether or not you're managing things. The question is, are you a surrendered steward? In all four areas of the relationships in which God has blessed you with, and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, are you surrendering those, those, rela- those relationships to God's self, others, and everything around us? Are you surrendering them unto the reconciling power of Jesus Christ? Are you being sanctified and washed and cleansed and, and progressed in, in completion in these areas? Our significance does not lie in what we have, or does it lie in what we don't have, or who we know, or in who knows us. The chief mark of our significance as human beings is that we are underlings, stewards, managers of someone else's wealth. Whether it is completely visible, such as material and physical assets, or whether it is totally invisible, such as relationships and status and health and time and talents, we are not even close to what we own or don't own. We are God's, and everything around us is His too. And so we respond in that knowledge by stewarding His things. One way in which we preach to ourselves that we are mere managers and not owners is by bringing him gifts that are his. We take our hands off of things so as to acknowledge his ownership. Proverbs illustrates this in Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. We think of this as a way of giving through his church to him. But it isn't just the things that we give in the offering plate that we honor God with. It is also the things that we continue to steward that aren't in the offering plate that we want to honor God with. We honor the Lord with our wealth, he says. The implication is really with everything we have. And we bring the first fruits to him to say, this is a symbol of my faith that you have provided everything else, a symbol of my dependence upon you, and a symbol of my gratitude. But really everything is yours, Lord. And so we ask the question about our things and about all of that that God has blessed us with. And we ask ourselves, do we honor God in the way in which we use this thing? Are we generous with what we have? Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Those on the bottom of the present system, so to speak, materially, are precisely the ones that God will use to build His kingdom and to rebuild His kingdom in that way in which sin has ruined. The fact is that there's a glory in the upside-down kingdom and the glory in the upside-down kingdom is that God is still sovereign even though everything's broken. 
The glory in the upside down kingdom means that we can approach one another and seek reconciliation in these four areas and know that God is still sovereign. The God who has always made it his purpose to dwell among his people and who is coming again to make all things new, according to Revelation 21.5, he desires that the poor and the rich dwell together as a symbol of his promise that this isn't all there is. This isn't the kingdom to come. The Apostle Paul speaks into this and by means of application we have three truths that we walk away with this morning and they're all really rooted in Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 13. The first truth that we walk away with in Christ and class, learning how to glorify God and reconciling all four relationships. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, I am not saying this because I am in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13 is often used in many Context and it is a, a very applicable verse. It's almost as universal application to the Christian. But when we recognize it's in the context of actually the the inward battle with stuff, the inward battle for reconciliation. Philippians four thirteen in the context is speaking about the inward spirit of contentment. I can do all things, but in this context, the Apostle Paul says, certainly at the top of my list as I'm relating it to you, is I can be content in the strength that Christ gives to me. I have a feeling that contentment might be the Christians, one of the Christians' greatest battles. And so we can claim 4.13 and say, Jesus, help me. In my hunger. Jesus help me. In my time of want. Be my strength. To bear under this this season. In a way that glorifies you. And secondly. Steward those four relationships. And thirdly. that And secondly. That just means grow. Grow in the ministry of reconciliation. Get to know your God. Live in the image of Christ that has been imprinted upon you in your relationship with yourself. Have a, a walk with others that is a ministry of reconciliation, speaking the gospel of reconciliation to others. And fourthly, steward your things, everything around you, to the glory of God. It's not yours. Then lastly, as we have learned, be generous. Let's pray.